0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight mini-sode. In the Spotlight Minisodes, we cover true crime cases that are in the South African media at the moment, as well as updates on other cases we've covered. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. In our last Spotlight Minisode, we covered Brian Stephen-Smith, a South African from Queenstown in the Eastern Cape, who's been arrested for the murder of a woman in Alaska. Smith was caught after a woman found an SD card lying in the street, which contained photos and video showing Smith killing a woman who'd later be identified as 30-year-old Kathleen Henry. As luck would have it, literally half an hour after I uploaded that mini in which I wondered about the possibility of other victims, the news broke that Smith had confessed to having been involved in another murder. In February this year, 52 year old Veronica Abuchak was reported missing. Her case remained unsolved as a missing person case, joining the ranks of thousands of other missing Native American women. In 2016, it was estimated that 5,712 Native American women were considered missing people, many of which never made it into law enforcement's records. While being interrogated about Kathleen Henry's murder, Smith allegedly admitted to shooting Veronica Abuchak and told investigators where they could find her body. What he didn't know is that police had already recovered Veronica's remains in April, but they hadn't identified her yet. After checking missing persons records, they showed Smith various photographs of missing woman, and he identified Veronica as the woman he had killed. DNA confirmed that the remains found belonged to her, and the location in which she was found was exactly where Smith described. Smith was charged with this murder as well, and he pleaded not guilty to both murders, which in my opinion is a bit odd. He allegedly admitted that the person in the video footage of Kathleen Henry's murder was him. He also told investigators where the body of Veronica Abuchak had been. I'm not sure how he sees that as a defendable case, but perhaps he's got something up his sleeve or he's pushing for a deal. If this goes ahead to trial, then his entire history will be open to investigation So he's either highly narcissistic, or he knows something we don't. It's still unknown how the SD card from Kathleen's murder ended up in the street, but Smith has allegedly claimed that his vehicle was broken into last month, and his wallet, documents, electronic items, and phones were stolen. A South African friend of Brian Smith, who met him when they attended school and worked with him for two years, has spoken to media. He said that he was completely shocked when he found out that Brian had been accused of these crimes. He claims to remember Brian as a quiet and gentle person, and he says that the look he sees in his eyes now is completely unrecognisable as the person he knew. He says that Smith's father passed away while they were at school together and he became even more quiet and withdrawn after that. The friend says that the scariest thing for him is that you think you know someone and then you realise that you really don't. Someone else that's feeling the same way right now is Brian Smith's wife. It's emerged that Smith met her on an online gaming site while he still lived in South Africa. It has also emerged that he only became a naturalised citizen of the US last month. Smith's wife spoke to the UK publication The Daily Mail and said that she found it inconceivable that her husband could be capable of murder. She described Smith as an adoring husband who loved gadgets. She said he enjoyed being outdoors and taking solo trips around Alaska which he liked to document on film. Considering what he's accused of, that last part of her statement is quite telling in my opinion. She says the police have told her that she doesn't know her husband and that she's now torn between her heart and her mind. I actually feel really sad for this woman. While many will ask how it's possible that she didn't know what her husband was, it's actually very possible. People like Brian become experts at putting a mask on. That's how they draw their victims in. Think about your own partner for a minute. You think you know everything about them, right? You think that you might even know them better than they know themselves. Well, here's the thing about human beings. None of us are mind readers you only know what comes out of their mouths, or what you think that their actions tell you. No matter how well you know someone, you will never know what is truly happening inside their heads. It's a scary thought, but it's something that we just have to accept and live with. For the great majority, we'll never be faced with the wholly duplicitous nature of a partner. Some of us will, on a smaller scale, For instance, finding out that your partner is in debt that you didn't know about or has an addiction or has been unfaithful. If you've ever experienced the revelation of one of those things about someone you love, then you may have a tiny inkling of what Brian Smith's wife is experiencing. Many partners of murderers have the same reaction she did. They can't believe it. They don't want to believe it and maybe part of that is because they think believing it says something about them. Smith's wife stated that she cannot understand how she didn't see that he could be capable of these acts. This man's actions have already impacted so many lives, most importantly his victims, but his wife is probably never going to be able to fully trust someone again. She's going to have the last five years of her life Forever coloured by the fact that none of it was real. She will question everything. Brian Smith's family, left in South Africa, have signed a deal for an exclusive interview with Heisgenoot magazine. There's no indication when that article will be released, but it'll be interesting to hear their take on Mr. Smith. Often family members of murderers will start to look back on childhood events and start putting the pieces together. Perhaps that article will give us some more information about his time in South Africa, because that's something we need to face up to as well. We now know that Brian Smith has killed at least two women in less than a year. By all accounts, there is no trigger that could have caused him to start in February. So that likely means that there are other victims. I'd like to be proven wrong. But as I said in the last minisode, I cannot believe that he only started killing at the age of 48. If anything is inconceivable to me, it's that. Smith is also charged with the abuse of a corpse in the case of Veronica, which is a charge usually used when a dead body is either mutilated or if the perpetrator performs a sex act on the victim after they're deceased. Considering Smith has pleaded not guilty, we may just find out exactly what that charge entails during the trial. Just the fact that he's somehow abused Veronica's corpse makes it really difficult for me to believe that this was a killer just starting out. Yes, people will sometimes mutilate a corpse to make it easier to dispose of, even when it's the first time they've killed someone, but it's pretty rare. Mutilating a corpse and necrophilia, which is the performing of a sex act with a corpse, are often behaviours that develop from a fantasy, and we know that the fantasy element for serial offenders develops and changes. So when did Smith develop this mutilation or necrophilia fantasy, if Veronica was his first victim? I have a funny feeling that this is not going to be the last we're going to hear about Brian Smith. So the next update I want to share with you is on the Marie Ostberg case. I covered Marie's disappearance in episode 2 of the podcast. The 21-year-old Norwegian student disappeared in April 2018 while on holiday in Sedgefield. There are several theories behind Marie's disappearance, one being that she drowned Her father has strongly refuted this theory, as Marie was very familiar with the ocean. And he believes that there was no way she would have gone into the ocean if she wasn't forced. Since our episode aired, author and journalist Julian Janssen has been doing some work on Marie's case, and he published an article in which he mentions some statements he got from her dad. Julian's article detailed information which had not come out in the South African press yet. Marie's dad said that the Norwegian authorities had recovered video and photos from Marie's phone. One of these images showed a picture of the man who had been seen on CCTV walking his dog. I mentioned this man in the original episode because we know that Marie was an animal lover and I wondered whether she may have interacted with him to engage with his dog. Marie's father told Julian that the dog walker, in his opinion, looked very similar to a man that had recently been arrested for a murder in Sedgefield. Sean Kelly was arrested for the murder of 67-year-old Noreen Hampson, which occurred in February this year. Noreen was attacked with a hammer in the street, and when people came to her aid, Sean Kelly attacked them with a hammer too, and damaged vehicles in the area as well. One of our listeners, Nina Paker, was friends with Noreen, and she was in court on the day of one of his appearances. Statements made in the courtroom by Sean Kelly further caused Marie's father to believe that he could be the dog walker. When Sean Kelly took the stand, he told the judge... That the whole of Sedgefield is a hotbed of underground activity. He claimed that people hire their children out to pedophiles and then referred to strange disappearances and inferred Marie's case. He didn't mention her name specifically though. So who is Sean Kelly? Nina, who met the man shortly before Noreen's murder and witnessed his ramblings in court, describes him as not being 10-4 upstairs. In other words, she felt that he was definitely not in his right state of mind. She describes him as very tall with an intense presence. Sean Kelly is 51 years old. According to an article in Edge News, he's divorced and unemployed and has a BA law degree. Kelly was born and raised in Durban and during his psychiatric assessments, he described a dysfunctional upbringing. He was briefly married in the early 2000s, after which he moved to America and worked as a painter. He seems to have saved a large amount of money while working there, as when he returned, he retired and built himself a house in Sedgefield. Kelly stated that he had had an increasingly poor relationship with the residents of Sedgefield during his time there, and he had also become estranged from his family, so he was living his life almost reclusively. According to Sean Kelly, he had no history of mental health issues. He admitted to using alcohol and cannabis prolifically during his time in Sedgefield. During this psychiatric assessment, Sean Kelly was diagnosed as being schizophrenic and certifiable in terms of the Mental Health Care Act. He was declared unfit to stand trial, and he was remanded to a mental health facility as a state patient. The judge stated that Kelly would remain in treatment in the facility, quote, Forever or until such time as it is deemed that you are fit for release. End quote. If such a time does come, he'll then be liable to stand trial for Noreen's murder. I'm going to read you a section of the psychiatric report which was published by Edge News, word for word as they have it. I don't think me re- rewording it serves a purpose, but please do note the source that I've mentioned. The report states quote, Mr. Kelly was a tall, middle aged man who was poorly kept and emaciated. He had a harsh, threatening demeanour, and he engaged reluctantly. His mood was irritable, and his affect was pensive and suspicious. He could give a coherent account of himself, albeit fundamentally informed by a complex, bizarre, persecutory, delusional system. His delusions included, amongst other themes, that aliens have taken over the world, misrepresenting themselves in the form of humans, that there is a large-scale conspiracy against him involving humanity and the world of the dead, that he is gifted and chosen to kill, heal and reincarnate as he sees fit. We also elicited that he is experiencing command hallucinations from witches sent from, as he says, the East and the West. Mr. Kelly learnt the ward programme with ease, but isolated himself. He physically assaulted more than one staff member unprovoked. Mr. Kelly has a good understanding of court procedure, but has a delusional belief that he is superior to the court's authority. He also has a persistent delusion involving the victims of the alleged offences, which adversely affects his ability to understand the wrongfulness of the alleged offences. Mr. Kelly is currently a high risk for violence towards others. End quote. Based on this psychiatric evaluation, there's a very good chance that any ramblings he made about the Marie Osper case are part of his delusions. Let's chat about schizophrenia for a minute. People often use the derogatory term schizo as a way to describe people who behave as though they have different personalities. Not only is this completely inaccurate, but it actually describes a completely different disorder. People with dissociative identity disorder will appear to have several personalities, although it's actually a fragmentation of one personality and it's the fragments you're seeing as separate personalities. Schizophrenia is completely different. People with schizophrenia see reality abnormally. They experience delusions, hallucinations, disordered thinking, and in its most severe state, may completely impair normal functioning. The misconception probably comes from the fact that schizophrenic people we'll often hear voices, which are called command hallucinations. And perhaps in colloquial terms, this is morphed into the thinking that those delusions are other personalities. Schizophrenia cannot be cured, and is genetic. So if one person in a family has it, there's a very good chance that at least one of their genetic descendants could have it as well. The symptoms of schizophrenia can be managed with medication and therapy. And it is actually very rare that someone with schizophrenia will become aggressive toward other people, as most often they would opt to self-harm rather than harm others. On the odd occasion, though, as appears to have happened with Sean Kelly, the delusions and command hallucinations become homicidal. Kelly's cannabis use in the years immediately preceding the murder is interesting, as the link between cannabis use and the onset of pre-existing schizophrenia has been researched for many years. There does, however, only seem to be a link in teenagers and not in fully developed adult males. Schizophrenia in males usually starts to show symptoms in the early to mid-twenties, So I would be very surprised if Sean Kelly managed to get through his entire life without experiencing any symptoms from a condition which is now so advanced that he's been certified. People with schizophrenia will cycle through periods of psychotic episodes throughout their life and it would be very rare for someone to have their first episode in their 50s. The biggest part of schizophrenia diagnosis that makes me wonder whether Sean Kelly could have been involved in Marie's disappearance is the disorganized thinking that is part of the condition. Marie seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. Absolutely no physical sign was found of her after she was last seen on the beach. Could someone with thought patterns as disordered as Sean Kelly really have been capable of hiding her body so well that even a huge search was unable to find her. Unless he got really lucky, I doubt it. Marie's father has been trying to raise funds to be able to come out to South Africa, and he's mentioned that he plans to do so early next year. I really hope that he's able to find some answers when he does. The case of missing 8-year-old Amahle Tibete has received a lot more exposure since we aired it in episode 5. Unfortunately, Amahle is still missing. An awareness march was held recently, which was organised by our very own listener, Tebeka Felicia, and the One Strong Voice Foundation. Meetings held around organising the march have also led to several private investigators becoming involved in the case and one of these, Wendy Pascoe, accompanied police to the area where Amatle was last seen to allow scent dogs to search the area. Although no developments have been announced, it has been mentioned on a few occasions that there are now some leads to follow, so I guess that's a better position than the case was in before. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is it for today's minisode. I'll be back next week Friday with a full episode. In between, be sure to follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. As always, I appreciate your support for the podcast and the victims for whom we are a voice. I'll chat to you soon.